Yes, he and Hannah uh, with a team head up the evening service, 7.30 p.m. at St. Mary's. Uh, Adam's also the communications director for 24-7 uh, prayer, so he's um, touching lives all over the world through uh, communications. And, um, uh, you know, it just by way of saying something about Adam that you might not already have known, uh, Adam is, uh, he studied chemistry and got a first in chemistry. And in fact, he was offered two doctorates and he turned them down because he said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in, in a lab working for some uh, um, pharmaceutical company. And uh, so he's a bright and brilliant man with a great mind choosing to put it at the disposal of the Lord. So it is that brilliant mind that I introduce to you now. Put your hands together and welcome Adam Heather. Well, good morning. I'm just going to launch in. I don't know what to say on the back of that. So... Today we are continuing our One Thing series. This is the third week looking at the different One Thing statements in the Bible. And so last week, Pete talked to us about what it looks like to have an undivided heart that seeks after God. And then two weeks ago, Julia Thomas did a fantastic job talking about the importance of prayer. And she read from the story in Luke 10 with Mary and Martha. And we are actually going to be revisiting that portion of Scripture today. So if you'd all kindly turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, or a phone to Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who was sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So today we're going to be looking at one thing in terms of proximity. And have you ever noticed how you always end up looking just like the people you spend the most time with? If you just turn your eyes to the screen, I want to show you what I mean. Okay, hold it there. So I was looking just for some funny images and everything, but I actually, as I was looking for them, I stumbled upon a piece of research that said, and I don't know who did this research, and I definitely don't know who paid for it, but apparently you can tell a dog to own a relationship with an 80% accuracy. So they did a big test, and they asked people, and 80% of the time people got it right. But what was really fascinating is that then they, um, they kind of put a thing over the top of someone's head and they put a thing over their mouth and so all they could see was the eyes of the dog and the eyes of the owner. And people still got it right with a 74% accuracy, which means that if you own a dog, your eyes are going to slightly be looking like your dog very soon. 
But basically the point is, we always end up looking like whoever we spend the most time with. And so jumping back into this portion of Luke, what I think is happening here is that Mary understands that. So I, wanna, I want you to get the impact of the wording that Luke is using in this, in this part of the Bible. At the time, the woman would have to serve at the back of the house, and then the men would be in the front of the house. The women were not allowed to come into the front of the house. Okay, So their place was in the back. In fact, and they definitely weren't allowed to hear from the teaching of a rabbi. I think Julia mentioned this two weeks ago. But there was a saying at the time where men would say, it is better to bury the Torah than to teach it to a woman. So what Mary is doing here is unprecedented. She is breaking so many cultural rules in this moment. But I think that what she's happened is she's heard and she knows this man, Jesus, is coming into the house. How could she possibly stay in the back room when she knew that if she spent time with Jesus, she'd end up looking a little bit more like him? It made her break every rule. It made her alienate her sister because she knew that she just had to get around Jesus. She had to understand the way that he thought. She had to understand the way that he felt. She had to understand the way that he reacted to the world. She wanted to look like Jesus. And you know the saying that we have nowadays when we say, oh, I just, that guy's so clever or that person's so interesting that I just want to sit at their feet. This whole kind of idea of you want to learn from them. Well, this is the wording that Luke uses here. That's where we got it from. Mary had very intentionally taken up the position of a disciple. She was saying, I want to sit at the Lord's feet and I want to learn from Jesus. I want to learn how he thinks. I want to get into his head. And it's this idea of learning how Jesus sees the world that I want to talk to you about today. A bit later on, um, Paul, when he writes, he sums this up in a brilliant way in his book in Romans. And there's a verse in Romans 12.2 that says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What a brilliant way to sum up what it looks like to think like Jesus. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as I was thinking about this verse, I was challenged by something. There's only two options given to you there. Each and every day, one thing will happen. You are either going to be conformed to look more and more like the world, unless you intentionally choose to allow God to renew your mind so you look more and more like Jesus. There is no neutral ground. Today, you are being pulled in one of those two directions. But what does it mean to be transformed? What is, what is Paul getting at when he says this word? Well, it's really interesting if you look into the, um, the Greek of the word transformed. And the word that Paul uses is basically the word that we get metamorphosis from, you know, this idea to, to change form. And it only appears three times in the entire New Testament, this word transformed. And the first time is when, we, when Jesus goes up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so often throughout the New Testament, um, Jesus would go alone to pray by himself. We often see him praying in public, but then we often hear about him waking up early in the morning and going to a secluded place to pray. Well, this is one of the... F- one, I think it's the only time in the Bible that you get a little glimpse into what those prayer meetings were like because he chooses to take three of his disciples with him. 
And as they walk up onto this mountain and Jesus begins to pray, it says that he is transformed. His skin and his clothes begin to shine as brilliantly as the sun. And then Elijah and Moses appear with him. But he undergoes this metamorphosis, this transformation. So it does, the Bible doesn't really tell us what's happening there, but I want to put it to you like this. What I think is happening there is that he's beginning to reflect a different reality. Physically, Jesus is beginning to reflect heaven. Okay, that's profound, because now if we take this back into Romans, and Paul intentionally chooses to use that word for transformation, what he is saying is that if you allow the Holy Spirit to begin to renew your mind, instead of looking more and more like the world, what's going to happen to you is a transformation is going to happen, where you begin to look more and more like heaven. You begin to think more and more like heaven. You begin to react to the different pressures of the world more like heaven. And you undergo this transformation. I mean, what an incredible opportunity the Bible gives us there. But then there's also the warning. If that's not happening, what is happening is that you're being conformed to look more and more like the world. More and more like a distorted reality. So I am... I work with a guy called Nick at 24-7. Some of you will know, saw his sisters in the audience, Anna. Very pleased to have you here. So I work with Nick, and some of you might remember Christmas, we went and we filmed some podcasts out in Colorado near where Dave comes from, and with a guy called Daniel Grothy, who's going to be um, sharing here next week, and he's an incredible speaker, so do come and listen to him. But while we were out there, we were out there for about 10 days, and we decided that while we're in America, the conversion rate was quite good, so we'd try and get some clothes, you know, and Nick is very particular about the clothes that he wears. So we arrive in the shopping center, and we've been looking around everywhere, and he finds this shirt that he really likes, okay? So he, he gets this shirt on, and he walks in front of the mirror, and he's like, oh yeah, this is good. This makes me look really trim. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a cool shirt. It's really nice. But obviously bear in mind that it's a thinning mirror. And he's like, what the heck is a thinning mirror? And I was like, well, you know, like they curve the glass because so it makes him look a bit thinner. And he, like, you see this like, righteous angle well up in him. And he's like, how dare they? <laughs> but that's the truth. That's what happens. It's that if we allow our brains to look more and more like the world, what we do is we don't even realize but we're looking into a thinning mirror. We're looking into the distorted reality that just isn't the truth. And this is why we have to make sure that we're allowing God to be the one that shapes our thoughts. God to be the one who shapes our thought processes. So how do we do that? How do we allow the Holy Spirit to begin to transform our mind? Well, I'm sure there's a number of ways, but there's three that I'd like to talk to you about today. And the first... And most important one, and the good news for all of us, is that it is not positive thinking. We do not renew our minds. That is not our job. The truth is it's the Holy Spirit who transforms our mind. So the good news is for every Christian here, as you're in community, as you began to do fellowship, as you were worshipping and praying and praising God, what you're doing constantly is inviting the Holy Spirit to begin to make you look more like Jesus. This isn't something that we try and like shake up and do ourselves. All we do is just allow the Holy Spirit to continually be doing that to us. It's a beautiful invitation that's ongoing all the time. And it's the most important thing that we have to remember. But there are a few ways, I think, that we can partner with the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's those that I'd like to talk to you about today. And the first one I'd like 
to talk about is demonstrated if you turn to Matthew 16. So Matthew 16, and we're going to be reading from verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they, be- they began discussing it among themselves, saying, ah, oh, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? This verse always confused me when I grew up. But what I think is happening here is that Jesus is trying to give the disciples a teaching. You know, He's wanting to give them some teaching about leaven and about hypocrisy. But as so often in the Bible, and what is quite comforting to me, is the disciples just miss it so profoundly. You know, It's really comforting. They spend all this time with Jesus, and sometimes they come across as so dumb. <laughs> but what... So what is happening is suddenly they begin to be like, ah, oh, Jesus is talking about bread. I bet he's hungry, and I bet he knows that we haven't brought any sandwiches. And then they probably start playing the blame game and everything like that. And Jesus is like, he obviously just clearly stops whatever teaching he was trying to do. And he says, oh, you of little faith, don't you remember? If you read up to the very end of chapter 15, the one that comes right before this, it's entitled, Jesus Feeds the 4,000. So what's happening? What's happening here is that Jesus is exposing the disciples to a different paradigm of how to live. Every time there is a miracle, what he's doing is, I want you to see that this miracle is a demonstration of how I want you to live in the world. This is the paradigm that I want you to start thinking through. So when we take that into our life, we need to start analyzing our history with God. We need to start thinking through, when did God come through for you? When did he miraculously intervene in your life? And how is that going to change the way that you react to the next situation that you face? For me, I remember a time when I was coming out of uni, I was really confused about what I was going to do. And God just totally came through for me in such a profound way. Then you skip forward a few years, and I found myself starting to worry about it again. And I had to really check myself, and I'm like, no, I remember God. I remember that you came through for me on this. I remember that you intervened, and I'm not going to question you again. I don't want to be the person of little faith. So what do we begin to do here? Well, we in in 24-7, every couple of weeks, we get the whole staff team together just to kind of catch up and see what's going on throughout the movement. And every time, someone will share like a little 15-minute devotional. And um, a couple of weeks ago, a, girl, a woman called Carla did one, and it was really profound. And basically, she was talking about him. She's based down in Chichester in Revelation Church, and she's in a small group, and they were running through the prayer course, which is a course that 24-7 and Alpha had made that introduced you to kind of the different types of prayer, and Pete hosts it. And as they're going through this discussion, someone threw out there, oh, I just want to share some testimonies. Who's got an answer to prayer that they'd like to share? And as so often happens, there was just this like silence that descended on the room. You know, that woman, someone's like, has everyone, anyone got a testimony? And you're like, I know I do. I do have a testimony. Just give me a second. I can't remember. And she was saying, we are such forgetful people. 
And then suddenly, like, someone was like, oh, actually, I do have one. And someone, and then that really sparked someone else. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. And then suddenly, everyone around the room began to remember all these things that God had done for them, which is so often what happens. But how, if we don't make sure that we remember all of these times that God intervenes for us, how are we going to let these things shape the way that we see the world? We are such forgetful people, but we must remember everything that God has done in our lives. You know, and the the encouraging thing is that God knew that we were going to be forgetful people. If you read through the Old Testament, there is constantly all these exhortations to just remember Remember what God did. Remember that time he came through. Put it on your lips. Sing it out in praise. Tell it to your children and your children's children. Don't forget, because we can't afford to see the world any differently than the way that God sees the world. And maybe some of you here, you're thinking, I'm actually quite a new Christian. I genuinely can't think of any time that God came through for me. I, can't, I don't have any profound testimony. Well, this is why we exist in community. Still someone else's testimony. Their God is your God. It's the same God. You know, we heard all about Rod this morning. So now the next time, we know that God is the God who heals pain in the neck. Not, not pains in the neck, a pain in the neck. So the next time a coworker comes up to you and asks for an aspirin, why not be the person who remembers? I understand the way that God sees that. I'm going to pray for them. I was really challenged about this, as Pete might have shared quite a lot last week. Me and him got the privilege of going over to Causeway Coast, and they are seeing the most incredible things. Three and a half thousand people saved in 18 months. Healing and salvations on the street, God intervening, social justice, all sorts of amazing things. But as I'm preparing this word, I'm thinking through, oh God, I have to remind myself of what you're doing there, because the God that exists in Causeway Coast is the same God that's here. So I know that's the paradigm that you want me to live with. That's the faith levels that you've exposed me to. And I want to renew my mind so that's the way I see. I think about the world that Jesus thinks about the world. So that's the the second point. The first point is it's the Holy Spirit's doing. He's constantly doing it. The second point is we remember our history with God and we celebrate testimonies. And then my final point that I want to come to is all about waging war for your mind. So if you read through the Bible, you find that Paul constantly talks about how there is a battlefield for your mind that you have to engage with. I heard someone sum it up brilliantly when they said, the six inches between your ears is the most valuable piece of real estate in the universe. The six inches between your ears is the most valuable piece of real estate in the universe. And the truth is, is that if I could examine how anyone in this room, not what they were thinking, but how they were thinking, I could probably tell you where you're going to be in a year's time. Because the way that you think is the rudder that determines where you're heading. So we've got to be making sure this is being renewed. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've got this thing of we are constantly either being transformed or conformed. We sit into one of those two camps. And the best way to daily be making sure that you're being transformed and not conformed is to get your head into this book. This book is full of an arsenal of promises that allow you to see the way the way that God sees the world. It allows you to see the world the way that God sees the world. I am... Um, I grew up and I was always a little bit confused by, um, you know, later on, Paul, he writes about the armor of God. 
And in the armor of God, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so I grew up in Sunday school and kind of I can remember making out of like paper and sellotape and all of those things like the armor and you'd come in at the end and you know, I'd have a sword that was like three times bigger than me and I'd be kind of waving it through. No, just me. Okay, great. Um, that's an idea for Matt Davis, wherever he is. Um, but as I began to think through and I began to look into the, into the Greek behind what Paul says around the sword of the Spirit... And you need to bear in mind at this point, Paul is in prison when he's writing to the Ephesians. So just imagine him behind a prison cell door, and he's sat there with his parchment, and he's thinking, okay, I can't go to these people in Ephesus, this church that I've planted, that I care about. What can I write to encourage them? And his eyes look out, and he sees the Roman centurion stood in front of his door, and he begins to think through the armor, he thinks through the helmet and the sandals and the shield. But what's really interesting is that the word that he uses for sword was not the long sword that they carried. It was very intentionally the short sword. So a a Roman soldier would have had two. They would have had the long sword that they had for battle, like me with my kind of big tinfoil one. But they would have also had a smaller dagger. And Paul very intentionally uses the word for dagger Okay, why? And I had a look into this. The dagger would have been used for a number of things. It was used for combat if they'd lost their big sword. But another thing is that they would all carry it because if a Roman got hit by an arrow, they knew it would get infected. So what they would do is they would take out this small, delicate knife and they would basically... Sorry, it's a little gruesome for 11.30 on a Sunday morning. But they would use this dagger and they'd flick the arrow out of their skin before it could get infected. So that's why they carried it. Interesting, when you now think, what does Paul talk about when he talks about attacks of the enemy? He talks about fiery darts, okay, that constantly come against us. And we know that the enemy is the father of lies, okay? So it's, it's logical to assume that his attacks of these fiery darts are thoughts, they're lies that are coming into our head, that are trying to change the way that we think, trying to change the way that we see ourselves and see the world. So what happens is this. You have your shield of faith. And constantly these thoughts are coming. You know, some people in here need to know that not all your thoughts are your own. Some of them are attacks that just need to not be taken seriously. Suddenly they come and you get all these crazy thoughts and they hit your shield of faith and you're like, that's fine. But then occasionally, for some reason, one of them just gets past your shield of faith. Ah, that hit. That connected. That That began to affect me. That changed the way that I felt about myself. That started to make me feel fearful. You know, for me, one that I was thinking through is that me and Hannah are getting married, and weddings are expensive. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I have the money for this. And suddenly, my shield of faith, like, ah, yeah, that one connected. That one got me. So it's there. That's when you get out your dagger. That's when you get out the word of God, and you think, okay, God, what does this book say about my finances? What does this book say about my provision? And what you begin to do is you begin to say, no, I'm not going to let that thing stay there. I'm not going to let that thing shape me. I'm not going to let that thing change me. Suddenly you get the word of God and you begin to declare over yourself, God is my provider. He's always come through for me. You get this dagger and you just flick it out. There are times when the way that you see yourself won't match up with the way this book talks about you. This book's right. And that is the most profound thing I can say. If you're going to take one thing away from today, it's that. If there's ever a discrepancy between the way that you see yourself and the way that God sees you, 
God is always right, and you're looking in some sort of thinning mirror. So what I want to do is I'm just going to bring up one final slide, and then I'm going to finish. Here is just a list of just a few promises. This book is absolutely filled, saturated with promises. You will never encounter a thing in your life that this book doesn't have an answer or an encouragement for. So I just want to go down. You're forgiven. Maybe there's someone in here that's just struggling with so much guilt and shame. Suddenly, like, there's some thought that came in, and you're like, oh, man, that got me. That connected. It's when you get in the book, and you get into 1 John, and you'd be like, no, I know I feel guilt and shame, but the Bible tells me that I'm forgiven, and I'm going to live in that. You're a conqueror. Maybe something just feels like it's just so big, and you're like, God, I'm never going to get through this. It's when you get into the Bible, and you get out the dagger, and you're like, no, I'm a conqueror. You begin to flick the arrow out. Jesus is the king of kings. Maybe there's something in your life that's trying to exalt itself, trying to convince you that it's more powerful than God. Jesus is like, no, I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the creator of all. And you just begin to fill yourself with promises. You begin to see the world the way that Jesus sees the world. You begin to have heavenly answers to earth's problems. And I just want to finish with one final thought. You know, the world... I tried to look up how many... How many adverts do, you come in, do we all come into contact with every day? It's hard to get an exact figure. I found somewhere... You get somewhere between 250 to 20,000 adverts coming at you every single day. Every single one of them is trying to affect the way that you think, the way that you see yourself, the way that you see the world. So what you do is you find yourself not in front of just one thinning mirror. You find yourself walking through an entire house of mirrors. Like you get at like carnivals and stuff. You know, and like one like makes you all like wibbly, like a Mr. Man, and one makes you all fat. You know, you find yourself walking through these things. And that's when you need to get back in the book and you need to start analysing the way you think. Like, I wonder how many people here are getting relationship advice from Grey's Anatomy and not from the Bible. <laughs> that's challenging, isn't it? I wonder how many people here are letting, like, a university lecturer's pressure about their exams determine how they think their future's going to pan out and not the promises in this Bible. It doesn't mean you don't work hard, but it does mean that Romans 8.28 is always true. He'll work all things together for the good of those that love him. So what the Holy Spirit's just gently trying to do is trying to say, stop looking in the mirror. All you're going to find is a distortion. All you're going to find is a distorted version of reality. Join me out here. Let me show you the way that I see the world. Remember what I've done for you. Remember what my word says about you. Just sit yourself back like Mary did. Fight. Don't be a Martha. Don't be working. Don't stay in the back room. Get down at the feet of Jesus. Because we have to. We have to make sure that we begin to look like the person that we spend the most time with. So I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to hand back over to Pete. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you're here with us. We thank you that your spirit is in this room. God, we are so grateful for the fact that this isn't about our striving. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're committed to making us look more and more like you every day. And so, Lord Jesus, for myself and everyone in here, times that we have felt like we've been connected, some arrows come in, something's made us question your authority, Someone's made, something's made us question the way that we see ourselves. 
in your power and in your gentleness right now, Holy Spirit. I just invite you to come and speak your truth. Come and speak your promises over us, God. We commit ourselves to you, Father, and we love you. Amen.